You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1965 film, King Rat. So this is a film that takes place in a, P- a Japanese POW camp. It is in the Singapore's... It is Changi. The Ch- Changi prison camp in Singapore. It's toward the end of the war. Most of these guys are that are held there are British and Australian because uh, they were who had held Singapore before the Japanese conquered Singapore. Um, although there are a few American POWs. There's a handful of them, yes. And one of them is Corporal King. And we see the remote... And the thing about this POW camp, it's not traditionally what you think with barbed wire, guard towers, fence, spotlights, all that kind of stuff. It's pretty much open. Yeah. They can move wherever they want. Because the thing is, escape is impossible because the, geographically there's no way they'll be able to make it to any near allied resistance or anything because they're just so far removed from it all. There's no chance of escape. Right. So we see in you, there is this sense of defeat because they're all pretty ragged. They've been starved by the Japanese who don't give them a lot of rations. And their clothes are ragged. But we see Corporal King, and he's in very well-dressed. He's in his officer's unif- his corporal uniform. Mm-hmm. It's cleaned. Yep. Very nice. And he, while everyone else seems very skinny and malnourished, he looks pretty well-fed. Yep. And I, I like the opening sequence of the film because it contrasts the uh, sad state of most of the prisoners. Visually, you see them lining up for this uh, very sparse uh, rice ration they'll get once a day. Um, you'll you see many of them laying in beds with mosquito nets over, unable to get up, very sick, and so forth. And they intercut those kinds of scenes with uh, footage of Corporal King getting a shave, getting a shoe shine. And then most tellingly, I think, and it it gives you, as you watch the film, I think you you, you get even more enraged by it. Um, He's even getting a manicure. Did you see that? Yes. Yeah. And while King is doing this, we meet a young British POW whose name is Marlowe. Yeah, Flight Lieutenant Marlowe. Yeah, and Marlowe sort of falls in with Corporal King. One of the first things he meets Corporal King is... King gives him an egg. And what's interesting when they're having that egg, you know, it's, he's having it on a pan. It's making this sizzling sound. And you can just, everybody in the barracks are just looking at it with yeah. this lust in their you know, eyes. Because yeah. they haven't had anything like this because they just have meager rations and he's getting eggs. Yeah, we have to point out here that this is this is a hut. They're, they're, they don't, you can't even dignify these shelters with the name barracks. Yeah. <laughs> they're huts. And clearly, King is, as it were, the king of that particular hut at any rate. And it is an American hut. 
So there are these other American prisoners in there who he is not uh, very generous in sharing his wealth with. You, you, if you remember, he asks, uh, he asks Marlowe if he wants an egg. and He says, of course I want an egg. And then he has this trunk, and he opens up this trunk, and there's a dozen eggs in there, a bunch of cigarettes, money, other, other kinds of food. So you immediately see, well, th- this guy's uh, uh, in some way or another, in relative terms at any rate for a POW camp, very well off, very healthy. And the reason he's invited Marlowe, we have to point this out, to eat with him. It's not out of any kind of friendship or wanting to form a friendship. It's because he heard him outside uh, the hut talking to a native in Malay. And uh, he needs somebody that does speak Malaysian uh, in order to pull off his... uh, He makes various deals with uh, Japanese... uh, soldiers at the camp and other people nearby that's why he's able to get all these things off the black market yes so they fall in and one of the there's various different schemes they do but the main thing which sort of what comes from the title of king rat Mm -hmm. is they uh kill off a bunch of rats in the camp and they decide to sell it to other British commanders within the POW camp, but they say they don't say it's rats because if they say that nobody will eat it. But they say yeah. it's a, a certain kind of deer. It's called a mouse deer. A mouse deer. Yeah, and it, it isn't that they killed them off. They had been killing them off, um, but then they capture they them. They capture them and they breed them yes. underneath this uh, this uh, hut of the Americans. And uh, you're right. Uh, it's obviously a disgusting thing to do, but the way he kind of sells it to the the uh, fellow POWs that are going to go ahead and work with him on this is, one, you can make money on it. Two, you can get back at the officers by doing this. We will lie to the officers and tell them that this is mouse deer, which is a delicacy in that part of the world. Uh, and... One of the, again, one of the more despicable scenes you see is later on in the film, after this has been running for a while, uh, and after Marlowe has had his arm cured, he had his arm injured, and uh, King saw to it that he his arm was cured and did not have to be amputated. But at any rate, he looks out the window and he sees three officers eating the this uh, rat. And he takes great joy. It's interesting because he actually is an officer himself. Yes, and uh, we should you know, note he's just a corporal. One of the guys... Or King is, but Marlowe is a flight lieutenant, yeah. RAF lieutenant. And he's taking joy. I found this particularly disturbing. Um, he's taking joy in watching these three officers eating this rat under the belief that it was uh, mouse deer. Yeah, we should point out that, yes... He's King, despite being the most powerful and well-nourished person in the camp, he's only a corporal. There yeah. are a lot of the people who are living in the squalor in the camp and malnourished and wearing ragged clothing, they're higher up. And actually, one of the guys that works under King is it yeah. was Max, and Max is higher up. I think he's a, Max is a, a sergeant. sergeant. Yeah. yeah, so he's higher up on the command <clears throat> chain. He should be his he superior. Should be, he should be. Yeah. He's, under him and he's doing everything like yes king i'll get get it for you king oh yeah he is uh king step and fetch it man for sure 
And uh, also, it's made clear throughout the film that King has uh, various of the colonels and even higher-ranking officers on his payroll. And on more than one occasion, one of them covers for him with a cover story or uh, comes in and diffuses a situation between him and uh, uh, the one character you, you kind of feel like is a decent person in this film, yeah. Gray. Gray, yes. And, uh, um, th- and then uh, just, just after that occurs, you know, he unrolls some uh, Japanese uh, 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 banknotes and says, here, go pay off the colonel for me, too. I believe it was Max. Um, so you see this guy has tremendous influence. He's really uh, uh, um, of anybody in the camp other than the Japanese, the one in charge, right? And the one that literally has the power in life of life and death over other people, uh, his fellow Americans and his fellow allied servicemen in this camp. And the great thing I do, I think they do in this with this film is not prominently uh, featuring the Japanese actors because, uh, and this was true in a a large number of these camps, the Japanese considered uh, allied prisoners to be uh, hindrances, burdens. And uh, to put it mildly, they treated them with malignant neglect they had no intention of feeding them enough, of feeding them enough to prevent starvation. They had no intention of giving them any uh, any adequate medical care, and they regularly took all the Red Cross packages that uh, uh, these men were supposedly uh, to receive from back home, and they kept them for themselves. So they essentially leave the men because, as you pointed out. Uh, because of the isolation, they leave the men almost to run the camp on their own. It's very interesting. And you see also they have the ability to leave the camp. Um, now, in this particular case, they have to sneak out of the camp, be very careful not be caught. But there were other camps in the Japanese prison system where prisoners were allowed to come and go at will um, and uh, do the kind of marketeering and black marketeering you see King do. And um, you also had in a lot of those camps the same kind of dissension and hatred uh, between prisoners because you had quite a few cases of prisoners like Corporal King who uh, amazingly, uh, you watch this and you're just amazed, but uh, amazingly took advantage of their fellow prisoners. Yeah, and throughout the film, Gray keeps saying, like, okay, you're winning now, but when this war ends, you're going to have to suffer. And the very end of the film, the war is over, and we see a paratrooper, British paratrooper, sort of grab a gun, uh, take over the camp, push out all the Japanese, and then we see him seeing King, and he automatically knows the dif- sees the difference. Like, why is he so yeah. in great shape? And yeah. he kind of gives this vague notice, like, we'll be looking into this. Yeah. And then we see Americans come in taking their guys, and we see Corporal King on this Jeep. Marlowe tries to reach out to him, but he's gone by then. And then Gray says, you know, we're, he says something about how we're, the lot, we pushed Churchill out, and now we're going to take over. Yeah. So I, it, it seems like you pretty much feel that now King is going to, you know, 
the chickens are coming home to roost for him, so to speak. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to read that. Um, there, there's certainly a little bit of a exploration. You got to remember that the author here is James Clavell, uh, born in Australia, but basically a British guy, lived most of his life there. And by the way, we should point out he actually was in this particular pr- Changik prison camp in Singapore. So he was impelled to write this novel because of his own personal experiences. But um, I think there's an element there of uh, a commentary on the class system in Britain there. Um, because what, what Gray's referring to there is at the very end of the war, um, the Labor Party kind of won a, in a very surprising way uh, the election just as the Potsdam Conference was going on, as a matter of fact, in, in uh, uh, July of 1945. And that had the effect of kicking Churchill out temporarily. He did come back later um, of, the, um, uh, of the office of the prime minister. And he was replaced by Clement, Clement Attlee, the, the labor guy. So a lot of people like Gray uh, in Britain did read this as, as kind of a, a repudiation, not necessarily the war effort, but of the Tory, more conservative and aristocratic element in British society. So that's, I think, what Gray thinks. And he almost, interestingly, I don't know why, but he, he, he's almost drawn a connection between Corporal King's behavior and the kind of aristocracy he doesn't like uh, back home in Britain. Um, yeah, because yeah. I did think... I was because like he does he see Churchill as sort of king and I didn't buy that. If anything, Corporal King, I thought was supposed to be representative, just that like the worst, all the worst elements of capitalism, right? Just making all this money. It's a free market. Do what you can. Yeah, he's, he's reaping everything while everyone else is suffering. And that is that is the the, the other element I think in this novel. Because I think Clavel is tapping into. I, I yeah yeah because speak. Oh, go ahead. And you're right, and I think there's a connection there because, uh, as in popular culture, as uh, there is a connection between capitalism considered as, as something of uh, not good, right, and greed, conservative conservatism, or aristocracy, right. So that that's probably the connection there between the two, um, and. You know, it, it brings to mind some interesting arguments that uh, King makes in in the film, but are which are more uh, in more detail adumbrated in the book, which, by the way, is great. Um, but he 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 presents a kind of a, a, a rationalizing um, argument in favor of his behavior. He says, "Look, essentially." Um, the Japanese are not going to provide for us at all. So me, by uh, running this black market, right, and buying medical care when necessary for people and uh, uh, selling um, goods and, and turning around and being able to provide food and so forth, I'm actually doing more good than would happen if, we, if nobody in the camp behaved in that way. Right now, it's not very plausible because, as we see, he's primarily only interested in himself, and he uh, uh, provides other people uh, with pay, f- 
food and medical care for two primary reasons, because they serve as ends, but also to protect himself in case uh, uh, something untoward happens. And you always see kind of hanging over him, and it really comes out at the end of the film. I'm in good shape now, but my position is very precarious, because at the end of the war, the, as it were, the social system in this, this uh, camp will collapse, and I will no longer be the top dog. Will I have to pay the price? And that's kind of the feeling you get maybe a little bit at the end there when he's driving off in the Jeep. He's standing up. The other guys are sitting down in, in, on the benches on either side of the uh, back of the Jeep. And he's propping himself up. He, he looks a little worried, I'd say, but they're, they're, I think they are positioning him that way to to uh, uh, highlight what you mentioned earlier, that there may be repercussions for him coming up. I don't know, though. Um, in the Richard Dawson character, the paratrooper that comes into the camp late in the film, as soon as he realizes this guy looks awfully healthy, he says, I'm going to be watching you. He, 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 he assumes he got healthy because he collaborated with the Japanese. That's not what he did. He got rich and he stayed healthy because he manipulated, took advantage of, and capitalized on completely helpless, starving, suffering fellow Americans and fellow Allied servicemen. Right? Mm -hmm. So that is a bit uh, like the caricature of the ruthless capitalist. Right? Yes. Um, again, it is a caricature, right? It, it, it brings to mind, I think, his character brings to mind, I think, two people they are very, remind me of, is World War II related. One is, a, in movies, was J.J. Uh, Sefton, the William Holden character in Stalag 17. He's doing the exact same thing, where he's making deals, black working the black market, bringing some privilege. He has privileges in camp others don't. Yeah. But in that movie, they because of that, they think he's actually collaborating with the Germans, particularly one of them is trying to make an escape. Yeah. But then there's this big thing where it's, no, it's the Peter Graves character. Yes. But then Holden at the end turns into a hero. He, yes. he gets Peter Graves. Yes. Then he decides to help this guy escape. He pulls off the successful yeah. escape. Right. But the on another hand, was another literary character of World War II literature would be a, a, the Milo Menderbender character from Catch Twenty Two, and yeah. he's an hilarious character yes. because he is just the worst, like kind of just that capitalism where he's he's not only working uh, the American side in the air camp, he's also working with Germans. So he even has like the Germans particularly bomb his camp so he can make money. And he's like, no, no, no don't hit that side guys. Yeah. He's like, he's even directing them with the radio. And he's yeah. like, it's like trying to get rid of this Egyptian cotton. So one of the things he does is he sticks like cotton in the chocolate and the rations. And so just so they can, can get rid of it. Yeah. Just all these things. Yes. Just so he's just so reprehensible. Yes. And, that works in that comedy. It actually works in that comedy. That, that's such a black comedy that um, it, it, it veers into the completely unrealistic. Uh, a little bit disturbing about King, in contrast, is, uh, yes, it's a fictional character, but it's based on uh, the realities that uh, 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 Clavel saw in his camp. And 
unlike those two characters who have some redeeming qualities, even if it is only comic relief in the one case, (laughs) but uh, definitely with Sefton, right? I mean, he, um, they lead you to believe he is just a completely, uh, he, ruthless self-interested person only only concerned for himself they lead you down that path only to surprise you at the end he's willing to help his his fellow uh um prisoners right and there's also a character like that in uh the great escape right i forget it's a james garner character what's his name uh, i forget i forget but he's kind of a shifty operator and everything a little bit but he's but, still pretty much a good guy yeah and, and i would say that's the case with sefton too N- there is no redeeming character like that with king the closest you can come uh, in his case is his seeming his seeming concern for marlo and they do a good job of showing this uh, he sits by his bedside during the medical treatments for his arm and it looks like he cares but you you quickly realize the only reason he cares and is there keeping care of Marlowe is because Marlowe had buried that money he had made off the deal selling it was a diamond if I recall correctly a diamond ring Um, and he knows if Marlowe dies he'll never get his hands on that money and you know this is the truth too because just as that deal was about to be made Marlowe was getting seriously sick because of the gangrenous area in that arm and um uh, king does his very best to talk marlo into working on that deal that night even though it puts him in considerable danger of uh health perhaps losing his life he wants to get that deal done and he he claims well see we have to do this because it'll help you and me look out our after ourselves uh, we'll have an, enough money to get ourselves out of the camp because, you know, at the end of the war, the Japanese will just kill everybody and we can buy our ways, way out. Remember he says that? Yes. Now, I don't know how much he actually believed that or not, but uh, it's pretty clear he's just he's just interested in preserving Marlowe's life so that he can get his hands on that money. And it becomes... I think distressingly clear for Marlowe at the end of the film, because as soon as that camp is liberated, uh, King's attitude toward him completely changes. He starts calling him sir. Remember, because he is a flight lieutenant and uh, Marlowe comes to him several times. Saying, Look, King, you're my friend and I, I'm not ashamed of being a friend of yours and all this. And it just doesn't phase him. Doesn't phase him. He's realizing King. That is, he's realizing that he's, possibly in a precarious spot here once this war ends. So he's obsessed with figuring out how he can protect himself. And that's why he is off by himself thinking, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you, you watch this film and you realize just what he takes advantage of is just the starvation yes. camp. I mean, not only with selling off the rats as these mouse deer, but another scene that plays a big part in the movie is... Him and a few of his other close friends, people who work with him, are hiding out in this cell, and they're going to have this rare meat. And they think it's like a steak or something. They're salivating over it. What they don't realize is that it's actually a dog. Because earlier on, one of the guys in the camp's dog uh, ate some of the chickens from one of the other uh, POWs. Right. And to serve out justice, they had to have the dog shot. Right. And that's that dog they're eating. And... 
originally when they figured that out, they're almost uh, repulsed by it. They yeah. don't want to eat it, but they haven't had any kind of anything substantive, like you said, other than the meager rice rations they're given. So yeah, rice and eat, roaches, roaches. So they eat it, and they're and it's just like it is like they're eating like this juicy, delicious steak. They're yeah. laughing and. Ha- yeah. It's him once him once again taking advantage of a situation, especially yep. starvation. The thing is also yep. calling back to that earlier scene when he's frying that egg, and just everybody in their wares is looking at it and yeah. salivating over. Yeah, it. and you can see Max in that particular scene with the egg. I think it's pretty powerful. It's a foreshadowing of what happens later in that film when Max finally erupts in anger at him, right? But uh, you can see him looking disgusted a little upset he leaves he leaves actually he gets up and leaves the the hut yeah and the the scene with the dog is just particularly appalling it really is and what's also appalling about it is that group of uh, men it's a mix of officers and enlisted british and american and australian all the people that he's got on his payroll right and he's told them Come into the, you know, come into the jail. I mean, there's two big parts of the camp, an outer part and then in an actual jail compound. And they're in one of the cells in that compound. And he, you're right. He doesn't tell them what it is until later after he started cooking it. And the aroma wafts through the cell. And uh, at first they're disgusted and they don't want anything to do with it. But then they find ways to rationalize it again, because you're right. They're always on the verge of starvation. And uh, it's so bad. I mean, uh, it, other than the daily insufficient uh, rice um, uh, quota, um, the, the prisoners basically have to provide for themselves. And we, we see uh, on one occasion they, they actually scoop out roaches from the uh, essentially what functions as pit toilets. Uh, and they, they've cooked those things up and eat them. Um, they're raising those chickens, and that's why it's such a big deal if a chicken gets killed, is that could uh, take uh, more than more than more than one prisoner over the uh, kind of the cliff of starvation. As we see, they lose them all the time. The only uh, that reminds me, there's one other character that's I would say admirable is the doctor, right? There doesn't seem to be anything corrupt with him, and uh, you, you see him dealing with deaths on a daily basis. And there's one poignant scene where a guy asks him to give him his boots. Where are they? They're, 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 at the, they're at the foot of the bed. Can you put them on my feet, please? And he goes to the foot of the bed. There are no boots there. He takes his own boots off and puts them on that patient and says, here you go. And then a little while later, he talks to the guy that's kind of like his orderly and says, you know, he's going to be passing soon when he does make sure I get my boots back. Right, that guy. He he seems, he seems to be one of the uh, non few non corrupt yeah. people in this camp. Because it isn't just King. Because we Gray in his own part of the British side, he realizes that one of the people in charge of uh, dealing out rations is stealing. Yeah, and he has a tampered weight which yes. helps him. And he um, again an officer uh, doing this. Yeah, and he gathers evidence, thinks that it's going to be severe punishment. They're going to be shot. Yeah. But then the other guy just reprimands him, strips him of that duty, and just lets him go. Yeah. And then when Gray says, "Well, I, that's not good enough," and I have the evidence of the weight, the weight's been switched. Yes. By the other officer, and the officer says, "You know, for doing this, for just pointing this out, 
we'll give you a nice cushy promotion. You okay with that? And he doesn't he said doesn't say no, but yes. he doesn't say yeah. yes. Silence, silence is red as consent. Yeah, so it's red so as consent. So even gray is corrupted. It breaks down. Yeah. yeah. And uh, up and down the chain of command, the officers, that's what's so telling about this. They're all corrupted in one way or another. Uh, led that way, perhaps by the exigences of the circumstance. You know, they are on the edge of starvation. Um, what, what makes this, I think, interesting and compelling from a, uh, philosophical and ethical perspective is, um, the, the commentary I think it provides, if you kind of step back and look at it from the 30,000-foot level, the historical level, the commentary this provides on um, the inadequacy of the conventions that governed the treatment of POWs at this time, the Geneva Conventions. There were a set of them. Uh, created in 1929, and then a little after this war, 1949. But uh, uh, they were constructed with good intent. Uh, They basically instructed what they called the detaining powers, would be whatever country is holding the POWs, to um, uh, treat them in certain ways, Uh, sometimes provide them uh, uh, pay, uh, provide them adequate food, Health, and then there were set up ways to um, uh, uh, pre- create oversight and make sure that the detaining powers actually did these things. But what's really curious is that uh, uh, in, in a lot of cases, the kind of treatment that was supposed to was required of detaining powers was considerably better than they treated their own soldiers and their own civilians. So it was deeply unrealistic to expect that they would follow these rules. And you get, when this happens, this kind of uh, uh, behavior. So uh, we did a film about the, the Korean War, yeah, right? The wreck. And the, the wreck and how Korean POWs were treated. So the, the combination of the way POWs were treated and behaved, in some cases, in the Pacific theater, right, and the way some POWs were uh, treated and behaved in the Korean conflict led the U.S. government to formulate something called the Fighting Man's Code of Conduct. And it has, uh, uh, it's in the form of an oath. Uh, And it it swears the, uh, the men, the soldiers, to carry the chain of, uh, treat themselves as, as if the chain of command still applies, even though they're POWs. So that you will be held legally responsible for anything that you do in the camp, right? And it also tells any senior officer that becomes a prisoner of war, um, you don't have any choice. You will take command in the camp. And it tells anybody of lesser rank, you have no choice. You will follow the orders of the senior men in the camp, right? And you will in no way do anything uh, that can be read as helping the enemy. Now, that all sounds relatively 
self-evident, but that isn't the way things were treated uh, uh, previous to this, uh, previous to the formation of the code. So you had, for example, in the Geneva Conventions, uh, um, requirements that the uh, POWs be given elections and that uh, they pick their they pick the people that will be, uh, as it were, in command of the officers or in command of the POWs. So it creates these little islands uh, and they're kind of, as it were, self-sufficient islands. But the crucial thing is they're no longer in the chain of command. Uh, so you have a bit of a dissolution of the normal uh, checks and balances that occur in a military organization that would prevent the kind of behavior you see in the Changi prison. Uh, classic counterexample to that, the behavior in that prison is the behavior of the POWs in the Vietnam and the North Vietnamese prison system. Uh, they maintain their chain of command. They considered themselves to still be in combat and they had a, a particular uh, uh, set of rules. It was called back us. The U.S. in the us stands for e unity over self. So they explicitly denied people's ability to simply look out after themselves. They had to look out after the group. And the uh, implicit reading of that was if you decide to look out after yourself despite what the code tells us how in terms of behavior you will be court-martialed when we go back right there was really nothing quite like that in these camps and you can see the result uh in the it, character of corporal yeah, king in contrast it to another famous world war ii pow movie which uh, ironically enough was co-written by James Clavell was The Great Escape. And that is all about not only chain of command, but people working together to find that purpose of getting out of that camp, and this, which was based on a true story. But it was also the amount of operations and digging the tunnels and yeah. everybody was planned where they go and they have a certain role, make sure some people know how to speak German, they can go in certain places that others can who don't know how to speak German. Yes, It's all about that operation. But thinking about they had the... Um, chance to escape because like switzerland was just right you know not yes. too far from there and a few of them did were able to make the escape yeah and uh that they were fortunate in a way that they were able to they were in a position to be able to plan a, a plausible escape and what uh contrasting that with obviously the case in japan there's nowhere to go there uh, in this in singapore i should say there's nowhere to go in with this uh, camp um so they couldn't they they couldn't unify around that sort of an effort. But you see, in the case of the Vietnamese POWs, they unified even though there was no realistic chance of escape there either. Although four guys did escape, they were recaptured, uh, and they paid the price for that in terms of torture, and one was killed. Um, but they 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 unified not so much around escape attempts, but around resistance. And they actually had a pretty sophisticated clandestine intelligence operation going on, too, uh, thanks to the cooperation of the wives 
who were sending secret messages through letters. And um, and in fact, allowed James Stockdale to point out two targets for airstrikes uh, right in the environs of North Vietnam. So there are always, I think the message here is there are always, and this is the wisdom of the code of conduct, there are always ways to unify effort uh, of POWs behind enemy lines, and especially in cases where they're being incarcerated by savage uh, regimes. Um, but you can always find a way to unify, uh, rely on their cleverness, rely on their genius for organization. These are, af- after all, uh, typically officers in the Vietnamese uh, camps, right? Rely on that and to encourage that behavior and as well discourage the kind of dissolution and atomism that happened in some of these camps in the World War II in the Pacific uh, theater um, require that they have that unity. And that's essentially what the Code of Conduct does. Uh, it's both an encouragement but also a discouragement. It says that there will be legal consequences if you look out only for yourself, right? It doesn't hurt to give people that the carrot and the stick, as it were. And you see the... Uh, Tremendous fruits that had with the, that group that was held in Vietnam. And another thing I think is important about that, too, is you see in a large number of the cases uh, there that there was not the kind of moral harm, moral injury, guilt, uh, uh, resentment, uh, dissension that you see in this film. Every one of these guys... Uh, realizes that the behavior they've fallen into thanks to the influence of King is to the detriment of the group, right? And they feel guilt about it. And you see that with Max when he erupts at the end of the film. But I also think to some extent you see it in King. I don't know if he feels guilty so much as he just realizes at the end. I've done so much he's afraid of the punishment i'm i'm yeah i've done so much to harm the organization the resistance efforts it actually never even started right um that i'm going to pay the price here right but in a lot of the cases with the officers and particularly the british officers you see guilt remorse and at the same time they're afraid to admit it and because they're also afraid for their own survival, they're afraid to do anything else. You never saw that in those Vietnamese camps. All right. Getting close to the end of my questions here, anything else you want to bring up before we start wrapping up? It did want, For those who were wondering if this is the same James Clavell who wrote that 900,000-page book, Shogun, yes, that's him. Yep. He, he was very... I think this... This is his debut novel, yes. if I'm mistaken. He's wrote the Asian, called it of the Asian Saga. Yeah, I've and got, it was got the titles this, here. Well, actually, I need my readers. But it was famously Shogun's his most famous, but other ones also focused on like relations between Eastern and Western world. Yeah, Taipan, Gaijin, Noble House. One called Whirlwind, which was the most recent one, actually had to do with Iran and the revolution. Yeah. But these these are these are books that are 
he kind of started the trend in the 70s and 80s with these huge, massive historical novels. They they weigh 10 pounds. You know, mm-hmm. these are doorstops. Uh, but and became famous miniseries. Yeah, uh, I think there was another one. I think it was by uh, the guy who wrote the Kane Mutiny, Herman Woke, but it was called yeah. The Winds of War, yes. and that was a big series with Robert Mitchum. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and uh, I have to say, King Rat uh, by those by those the standards of length at any rate of all the other books in this series it's relatively short um and it is like you said the first one um but it's a powerful story it's a powerful story i think it's primarily a story of uh, the moral injury that occurred in this camp um why why would why did it happen because everybody was looking out after themselves instead of the group and uh they paid the price, and what's ambiguous about it is you don't know if King is going to pay the price at the end of that movie as, as he's driving off in that Jeep with all the other Americans. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, for each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. (laughs) 